Good morning, Restoration Road. How you guys doing? Let me ask you all a question here on the front end. Did Price is Right, the show Price is Right, did that change anybody else's life? Did Bob Barker and what he did in the 80s change anybody else's life? Nobody? Thank you. Dave, thank you. I'm, I'm going to say, because... I was going to say two things for those of you that, that just kind of looked at me like I, I didn't know what I was talking about. First of all, I'm sad for you. Just, I'm sad that you didn't experience all that Price is Right had to offer. And secondly, if you don't know about Price is Right, you don't know how it, how it worked, how it functioned, Price is Right is a game show where contestants had all sorts of options to win money. So... I don't know, I was actually, I, I got on their website and saw the new version of Price is Right, which isn't real, but, you know, looked on their games, and they have like 50, 55 games, it's ridiculous. But I, I thought about the Price is Right this week as I looked at this passage that we're, we're, we're talking about here in John 13, because this passage is one that I think you can look at from a number of different angles. So I think there's a number of different things that Say, if you were to, to teach from it, you could come at it from a number of different ways. So, specifically, I think kind of the, the main idea, if you, if you will, is found in verse 14. And Joey read this, and I'll read it here again. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So you could say that that really kind of gets to the heartbeat of the passage and what Jesus is trying to do here. And if you wanted to craft a whole sermon around that, you could, and many pastors do. I think there's also this reality in the passage that Jesus sort of alludes to baptism and the significance of it and what it means for the believer, that if he doesn't actually wash us through baptism, we have no part in him. So you could go off on that and teach on that. But as I looked at this passage, I was struck by one thing. I was struck by the reality that Jesus doesn't give us a choice. He makes us choose. Jesus doesn't give us a choice. He makes us choose. And if you're listening to me, you probably just heard a statement that seems contradictory on the surface. You might be thinking, Joffrey lost it. He doesn't know what he's talking about because he's no longer making sense. Well, I said it that way because I want you to, to keep that in mind. Now, I ultimately want you to walk away with that. If you, if you remember one thing from today, remember this idea that Jesus doesn't give us a choice. He makes us choose. And what I mean by saying that is that Jesus makes us choose, makes us decide on who he is. He makes us decide and make a choice on his identity and the claims that he made about his own identity. Jesus doesn't give us an option of just saying, you know, that's all good, but I don't really care too much. I'm not going to make a decision. It's not relevant. That doesn't lay on the table for us. Jesus makes us make a choice. And in this passage, the thing that I was struck by is that we see 
sort of the, the, full, the, the, the full spectrum and one option on each end of that spectrum kind of put together right here together. We see Peter's reaction to Jesus in that he fully commits and fully devotes his life to Christ. And on the other side, we see Judas. And we see what he goes through and the way in which he completely denies Jesus and denies Jesus' lordship. And so that's what I want to look at today and those two reactions and how that is reality for us as well. Let us pray. God, we, we come before you humbly and, and ask that your word that is such a gift to us, that is such a, a physical uh, representation of your grace to us, that you have gifted us with your word and it is self-revelation. God, that we, we just humbly approach it and ask uh, this morning that my words not be my own words, that they be your words and ultimately be your word that goes out and doesn't return without fruit. So I pray this morning for all of us that we be changed and transformed by your word. God, we love you. We need you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going we're gonna to get into the text, but just to kind of set the scene as we get into this passage, um, specifically looking at, at chapter 13, uh, really 1 through 30, we're not going to read all of those verses. It's a, it's a long one. I'll, I'll let you guys do that. But looking at this passage, we jump right into it, so I want to kind of set the scene of what we're dealing with here. So Jesus and his disciples are, are at the very end of the road. I mean, they are at the end of the road of ministry that they've been on for three years at this point. So they've just come into Jerusalem, and, and they're in the upper room. This is the scene of the Last Supper. They've come from a long journey. They've arrived, and they're there ready to have a meal. Well, as Joey talked about a little bit, in the Middle East, you're walking around, you're walking on roads, you either have two options. You have dusty, nasty feet, or you have muddy, nasty feet. Those are your two options. And so the disciples and Jesus come into this room. I don't know if they had muddy feet, I don't know if they had dusty feet, but either way, they had some nasty feet. And so they needed to wash them. That needed to happen for them to be able to sit back and enjoy this meal together. And Jesus and his disciples, we have to remember who they are and, and their situation. These are, these are our, our, our normal people. These are even probably could be uh, described as poor people, Jesus included. I mean, Jesus himself at some point, at one point in Scripture, says he, he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. They're not wealthy people. They don't have slaves when they get to the room that are just waiting on them with buckets of water to wash their feet. But they get to this room, and of all people in the room, Jesus offers to wash their feet. The one person in that room that had no business offering to wash the feet of all the rest of them is Jesus himself. The one person there that shouldn't 
have stepped forward and said, I'm going to do this for you guys. Anybody else, Matthew, James, John, any of them should have stepped up and said, guys, I'm going to help out here. I'm going to serve you all. This is what I'm going to do for you. They don't. And Jesus steps forward and offers to wash the feet of his disciples. One author says it like this. This is D.A. Carson. He says, his act, speaking of Jesus, his act of humility is as unnecessary as it is stunning and is simultaneously a display of love, a symbol of saving cleansing, and a model of Christian conduct. So that's the scene that we have. That's what we have going on right now in this passage, that Jesus is now getting down. He's wrapped himself literally like a slave to demonstrate his humility before his disciples. And so he's now washing their feet. I want to read uh, some of the passage here. We're going to look at our two responses to Christ and what those look like, beginning actually with Judas's response. So we're going to look at the text, specifically verse 18 and then 25 through 30. Verse 18 says this, Jesus speaking, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then now moving on to verse 25 through 30. So that disciple, this is actually John, the the gospel writer, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Well, we see, we see in that, that first verse, and the reason I specifically wanted to read that, is that Jesus says something's about to happen, guys, here. A, a, a prophecy is to be fulfilled And he specifically references a verse that Joey read on the front end from Psalm 41. And what it says there is that uh, it's King David writing, and he says a very similar thing. You know, Jesus is quoting him here, and he says that somebody that has eaten my bread or eaten bread with me will lift his heel against me, will betray me. And by saying this, and by this being the reality of the situation, Jesus is drawing the emphasis on Judas's response and the nature of it. Think about Judas. Think about his relationship to Jesus. These are guys that have, have done ministry for three years together, have not just shared this bread that we're reading about here, but they've shared bread over and over and over together. And in the Jewish mindset, if you, if you shared a meal with somebody, that 
almost immediately means there's a, a relationship there. And we have a similar idea in our own culture today. We, we, we think along those same lines, but you know, kind of amplify that in a Jewish situation, that if you share bread with somebody, there's relationship there. There's special relationship. And so because of that, because Judas has, has shared bread literally at that moment with Jesus, it goes to show the, the extreme sort of heinousness of what Judas was doing, the terrible nature of what he was doing and the way in which he was responding to Jesus. That he would start by denying Jesus' lordship and end by completely betraying him. Well, we also see in verse 18 this idea about lifting his, lifting his heel. I had to work on that. That's my Oklahoma accent coming through right there. Lifting his heel against Jesus. And what that looks like, what that means. So again, we, we have to look back at, at, at the, the prophecy of Psalm 41 that Jesus here is referring to. And that's, again, King David there is writing uh, really a lament to, to, to God. Saying, what is going on? What is happening? How can I bear this? Because see, what was happening in David's life actually sort of reflects what's happening in Jesus' life here in John 13. And this happens over and over. David's life, in a lot of ways, reflected what the Christ, Jesus, would experience. But David, some of you know, his own son would betray him. His own son would turn against him. And not just that. He wouldn't just turn against him and say, Dad, you know, I don't like you anymore. We're done here. He would literally seek David's life. He would seek to end David. And David would be faced with that reality of his own son turning his back on him, denying him completely, and trying to murder him. David ends up having to murder his own son out of self-defense. So Jesus here is quoting this passage. He's quoting this passage from David who's struggling with what he's gone through with his son because Jesus now faces this reality of complete denial and betrayal by his, one of his closest, one of his own disciples. Well, how does this reaction, how does uh, Judas's response to Jesus, how does that play itself out in our own day? How does that play itself out in our own culture? You know, you might get the, the raging atheist that just says, you know, there is no God. I can't believe that anybody would say that there's a God. Specifically, I think Jesus is a wacko, and, you know, why would anybody even be talking about him anymore? I don't know if you've ever read a Richard Dawkins book, but that's more or less in summation what he has to say. But that's not what we run into too often, is it? More, we run into the idea that, that, that kind of goes along the lines of, yeah, Jesus is a, is a great moral teacher, He's a great inspiration. It's really great that he's inspired literally billions around the world throughout the course of history. You know, it's, it's great that people look up to him because he seemed to be a good guy. 
But that person would also probably say the same thing about Buddha or Muhammad or spirituality in general, that it's great, that it's inspiring, and that's really what counts. Do you hear it in there? Do you hear that that is a complete denial of Jesus' lordship? It's not as raging as the atheist, or it's not as direct as Judas's response here, but it's still the same. It's still a complete denial of Jesus and who he was and who he claimed to be. Even in the next chapter, we won't read it, but the next chapter, Jesus makes a claim about his identity. It makes us make a choice. He doesn't give us the option of not. And again, I think this passage is great in that it shows us the two options before us and what's happening here. We've seen Judas respond with complete denial of Jesus. But we also have the response of Peter. And so as we look back at the text, let's read uh, verses 6, 6 through 9. It says this, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So in drastic comparison to Judas and the way in which he has denied Christ, we now see Peter and the way in which he fully devotes and fully commits his life to Christ. What's interesting about this and thinking through this and what this looked like for Peter, I don't know if if Peter really knew what he was signing up for at the time. Who's to say? I don't know. I wasn't in Peter's head at the time. But Peter had this way about him. You know, if, if you've ever read through the Gospels, you start to realize that Peter comes across as a goofball most of the time. In, in the Gospels. It changes in the rest of the New Testament, but he comes across as a guy that just blurts things out, you know, and, and, and that's where he's going with it. And this is great that he has fully uh, devoted his life to Christ, but I also wonder, did he know what he was really signing up for? Because what's Christ doing here? What is Jesus doing with this whole sort of ceremony, if you will, this, this foot-washing ceremony? He's instructing his disciples. He's, he's saying, guys, this is what it's about. This is what's going to happen. And this is what my, my kingdom and my gospel are about. Servanthood. Humility. Sacrifice. I mean, read verse 14. This is Jesus again saying, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. That's what Peter is committing to. That's what Peter is saying. Sign me up for that. Don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. I want it all. I want all of you, Jesus. That's what he's committing to, but I don't know if he knows what he's committing to at the time. But what leads Peter to this? What motivates him to say this? Beyond maybe some 
extra uh, just enthusiasm that Peter seems to always have? What beyond that would motivate Peter to say, Jesus, I want everything. I, 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 you know, if washing my feet means that I get to have a part of you, then please don't stop there. What motivates him to do that? Well, first of all, I think the very reality that, again, Jesus, God in man, Savior of the world, Messiah, has wrapped himself as a slave, has, has tied a towel around himself, taken the position of a slave to his own disciples. And all along, he's been asking his disciples to believe in him, to have faith in him. And now he does this. So I got to think that that Peter is motivated by Jesus' own willingness to serve. His own, really, miraculous willingness to serve his own disciples in this moment. But beyond that, Peter is, is three years in with Jesus. This isn't their first time hanging out. This is day in and day out for these guys. They've been around each other. They've spent time with each other. They've shared life in incredible ways over the past three years. So Peter has that wealth of knowledge and that wealth of experience to draw from. As I thought about this, this you know, Peter's reaction in this, I thought it would be good to look at least at, at one of those experiences that he shared with Jesus that would then that then leads to what we're looking at in John 13. This is Matthew 16, 13 through 17. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this is, that's just one of many, obviously. But Peter has had these experiences, and this experience specifically, where Jesus has, has just shown him how gracious God is. Because what's he saying there in Matthew? He's telling Peter, Peter, you don't know what you know because you've just reasoned it out. You haven't just figured out something that nobody else can figure out. You, you might not realize it right now, But my Father gave that to you. My Father has been gracious to you enough to bestow that knowledge upon you that I am the Christ. And you're right in saying that I'm the Christ. But know that that is God's grace to you. And not just that. Not just that you have this saving knowledge of me now. But I'm going to use you in a way that you'll never you could never have imagined before, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. Peter has this experience to draw from 
Here in John 13, uh, as he reflects on, on, on what Jesus is doing and then commits his, his life to what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is proclaiming. It got me thinking, how often do I, in my own life, reflect on, on what Jesus has done and the faithfulness that Jesus has shown me over the years and really allow that to motivate and shape my future. How do I allow Jesus' faithfulness in the past to then lead to obedience on my part in the future? I was struck by that when I, when I really started to think about it, how rarely I actually do this. Well, in some ways, this response to Jesus and the way in which Peter is dedicating the rest of his life to Jesus is kind of the beginning of the rest of his life. Again, we're at a very pivotal moment in the Gospel of John, and Peter is committing his life to Jesus. And yes, Jesus is going to die on a cross and physically leave the earth, but In some ways, this is only the beginning for Peter, and he's committing everything to Christ. You read the New Testament, you you see account account after account of Peter's life and the way in which this commitment that he makes here rings true. This wasn't a, a flippant decision, even though it might have been filled with enthusiasm in the moment. It wasn't flippant. Yes, Peter is going to fall and crumble that very night. He's going to deny Christ when the pressure and the heat is on. But he's also going to be restored. And he's going to go on to, as Jesus himself spoke over the life of Peter, he's going to go on to lead the church. And he's going to go on to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus. And ultimately, we're going to see that Peter dies, dies a martyr's death on behalf of what Jesus is proclaiming, uh, on behalf of the gospel of Christ. And so we have the luxury now, 2,000 years later, of seeing that these words that Peter spoke to Jesus really were at the heart level, that they, they ring true, they lasted for the rest of his days. And we can be challenged by that. We can be encouraged by that. That we have these options of response to Jesus. And as I say all of this, please know that I'm not stripping this of the sovereignty of God. I'm not pulling away, even in the passage where it talks about Satan entering Judas. And as we read about in Matthew 16, God revealing Himself to Peter. But that said, we have a choice. We're not robots. That's not what it's about. We, we, we hold those two in tension. That God is sovereign and He does reveal Himself to people. But that we also have to respond. We must respond to who Jesus is, to what He claimed to be. And as, as, as we have seen in this passage, we have two responses. This is an, an eternal perspective of these responses. So hear me say that. But we have two responses. 
We have Judas. And we can completely deny the lordship of Jesus. It might not take on the form of us saying Jesus is a wacko, but it might take on the form of us just saying he's probably not who he said he was. And I'm not going to believe in that. Or we have Peter's response. And we can say, Jesus, you are Messiah. You are Christ. What you say about yourself is true. And because of that, because of that reality, I want all of you. I want all of you. Don't just wash my feet. Wash my head. Everything. Restoration Road, I pray today that we be challenged and motivated and encouraged by Peter's response. Obviously, that should be the response we have to Christ, to who he is. We say we recognize what you have done on the cross, the grace you have shown us on the cross. And because of that, take all of us. Here's our life. We want all of you, Jesus, not just our feet, all of us.